Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk about one of my newest passions, which is a form of exercise training that I believe is one of the greatest innovations in the last century. It's called blood flow restriction training. And we're joined today by Ed LaCara, who's been doing this for quite a while. And he's going to share with us his insights on this powerful technology. And I'm really excited about this one. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Ed. Thank you so much, Dr. Mercola, for having me. I'm really super excited to be here. So rather than uh, attempt to describe your biography at the beginning, I'm going to let you do that and uh, so people can know what your professional training is and, how, and then maybe from there jump right into how you first were first exposed to blood flow restriction training and uh, then we can go from there. Sure, that sounds good. I, um, uh, my, my educational background is uh, my PhD is in sports medicine, and um, I'm also a, a doctor of chiropractic, um, certified athletic trainer, and a um, strength and conditioning coach. So I combine all those wow. kind of backgrounds into the treatment plan and approach that I use for my patients. One of the frustrations that I've had after being in practice, I've been in practice for about 20 years, was that very often patients would see me while they're in pain, um, but my, my understanding of exercise and exercise physiology knew that once they were out of pain, they still had not gotten their body to the capacity they needed in order to meet the demands that their sport or their life is imposing on them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten injured in the first place. And a lot of times it's because, hey, they run out of insurance visits and that only got us through the point of where they're decreasing in pain or they think that once they're out of pain that their injury is healed. And so it was very, very frustrating for me to see people consistently injure themselves over and over and over again. And I wasn't given enough time to really truly increase their body's capacity for the demand of sport or life, whatever they're implying on it that was causing injury. Then in about 2012, a good friend of mine who at the time was the director of sports medicine at FC Dallas, he said, um, hey, you've got to really check out this thing called blood flow restriction training. And I had never heard of it. And this was 2009? 2012. 12, okay, 2012. Yeah, okay. 2012. So I do what all good nerds do. And I went into the literature and I looked at PubMed and I looked at the sport discus and I looked at Ovid, and I looked at these different <clears throat> libraries that I had access to, and I was overwhelmed with how much research was already out there. My, my previous experience with different types of modalities that I use in the clinic or different exercise um, appliances was not a very lot of literature, or we had to try to apply literature that was already existing towards 
what we were trying to do. For example, like the TRX suspension trainer. When I first started working with TRX with the suspension trainer, although we all knew it was a great modality, we knew we could strengthen. We didn't have any research to support it. This was totally opposite. This was over 650 studies at the time had been done. It had been, been utilized for years, uh, validated, reliable. And so I was like, oh my gosh, how have I not heard about this? <laughs> and it was almost too good to be true. To get strength or hypertrophy in four to six weeks was just like, there's no way. Physiologically, that's impossible. And to not be causing muscle damage associated with that. So I was a, I was a very big skeptic, to say the least, when I started. Yes, indeed. Maybe we can just take a little tangent and explain why someone who is uh, really is um, fascinated and uh, uh, just massively interested in this topic uh, was unaware of this until 2012. Uh, it was likely related because it's been around for over 50 years, but it was developed in Japan, and most of all the initial research was published in Japanese, not in English. And I'm surprised there were that many articles in 2012, actually. But uh, it didn't come over to the United States until 2010. So you were, were a really early adopter of this technology in the U.S. And it was brought over by a person named Stephen or Stephen uh, from the Katsu Global uh, Company that spoke fluent Japanese and actually in, uh, connected with Dr. Sato, who developed the technique in uh, 1966. And he had to go there for times every year for 13 years before Sato finally agreed and allowed him to release it in the U.S. So that's why he didn't know about it until 2012. Yeah. Well, and I was even working at the Veterans Administration in Northern California, where really this was adopted in the U.S. Uh, for the, through the DOD and the VA. Um, and I had never even heard of it. And I was working in the facilities that were taking care of our veterans. I mean, so this is really, really new technology in the U.S. And, um, and so when I found, I found out about this, and yeah, I was puzzled that I had never heard about it. And I started looking for resources, books, videos, things to try to find out about it. I really couldn't find much. And that's when I really started saying, you know what, we, need to, we, we really need to not only be utilizing this with my patients, but I need to be teaching others how to utilize this and, and bring awareness to this in the U.S. So as far as I can tell, you may be one of the leading educators in this in the United States. Uh, I certainly haven't done a, an exhaustive search and review, but from what I've encountered so far, you're, you're at the top. So I'm wondering if you had, if you, uh, had any mentors or are you pretty much self-taught in this and how you compiled your, your expertise? Well, I've read... Um... I, if I haven't read every study that's been published in English, and I, it's, it's pretty close. Um, there's so much research now coming out that I can't keep up with it. I, I do private, I do practice every day. And so I see patients, you know, eight to 10 hours every day. Um, and so I'm left with my free time to really try to stay up to date with the current literature that's coming out. And I'm a little bit behind this year because there's so much, so much of it is coming out and it's so exciting. Um, but mostly self-taught, I've read a lot. I've um, looked at what other uh, people in my industry, either physical therapy or strength conditioning are doing. Um, and I'm really, really fortunate because I do travel and teach this so much, I get to learn what other people are doing that might be even a little bit off-label. And really understanding the literature helps me understand how they're utilizing it and vice versa. We can really share and be collaborative about this 
Um, and I think we're not even close to the ice, tip of the iceberg about how we're going to utilize this in five or 10 years. I couldn't agree more. So before we go into the details of uh, some of the differences between traditional katsu and the, the type of blood flow restriction training you're doing, I'd like you to review for us the physiology of why this works. Why can someone in four to six weeks get extraordinary hypertrophy and strength that they simply are unable to achieve from virtually any other intervention? Sure. I mean, why, does it, why does it do that from your understanding? Well, I think it's multifactorial. And um, what I like to tell people is that we are tricking your brain and your body into thinking that it's doing high intensity exercise, yet we're just doing low intensity exercise. High intensity resistance training is defined as somewhere between 65 and 90% of someone's one rep max, depending on what resource you're looking at. Low intensity exercise is around 20 to 35% of your one rep max. So if you look, you can even see behind me some of the modalities that I use in my clinic, I'm using resistance tubing and resistance bands, and I'm using dumbbells no heavier than about 20 pounds. And I'm able to take these light weights, apply uh, uh, something to occlude the blood flow, and allowing patients' bodies to think that they're doing very high-intensity exercise when they're not. The advantage to this is that I don't cause any damage to the tissue if I do it appropriately. Whereas normal exercise training at high intensity does. These patients can't cause more damage to their tissue because they're already injured. And so we use the same exercises that we do in rehab, very light load, but we're able to mimic high intensity exercise, which outside of the physiology that occurs is really the game changer. That's what allows us to see these these quick um, adaptations. Okay, I just want to clear that up and maybe go into some of the more details of that, but you'd refer to this as high intensity. I just, the clarification is that it's high intensity with, with respect to conventional strength training. Uh, but if you consider high, the broader uh, definition of high intensity with respect to exercise, I, I would classify it as high intensity exercises on the number of, for a number of reasons. One is that it, it elicits a very strong sympathetic response. And, uh, what, and you'll notice that by, by the fact, two primary things is that you're really out of breath. You're breathing very rapidly and you're sweating profusely. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, really the only way that happens is when you're in high intensity exercise, at least from my understanding. So sure. what, what, you, I actually discussed this with Dr. Jim, Jim Strait Gunderson, who's been another longtime user of He's a physician and treats a lot of the elite athletes out in Park City. And uh, he agreed with that. Yeah, absolutely. And here's, here's the, I kind of call that the cardiovascular or the aerobic adaptation. Mm -hmm. And if I am to grab a cuff, just so yeah, I'll sure. see what we're doing. If, if I have this cuff and I place it on my limb, Now, when I inflate this cuff, what I'm doing is I inflate it to a certain percentage of what's called my limb occlusion pressure. I'm reducing the amount of arterial flow into this arm, 
but I'm totally restricting any venous return. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that fluid that should be returning to my heart under normal circumstances is not. That means that there's extra fluid hanging out down here that never gets back to my heart that can't be involved in cardiac output. Cardiac output is the amount of heart that's get or amount of blood that's being pumped to the body. And if I decrease the stroke volume, the other part of that equation is the heart rate. Heart rate times stroke volume is equal to cardiac output. And so if I reduce the stroke volume, my heart rate has to jump up in order to keep the same amount of blood flow going out to the working muscles. And that's where really physiologically we see the stress induced on the aerobic capacity system um, and why these exercises raise your heart rate so rapidly and give you this sense of um, having to work very, very hard to do very light loads. Yeah. So this is an interesting tangent. It occurred to me that uh, obviously this, everyone understands this is increasing muscle mass. It's a strength training adaptation that is occurring. But can, can you comment on the improvements you've seen in cardiovascular or aerobic performance? Uh, absolutely. And there's, there's numerous ways that, that we can improve aerobic capacity or cardiovascular endurance. Um, one of the most simple is just doing walking with the cuffs on for 15 to 20 minutes. And what the literature has suggested is that you get um, an improvement in your aerobic capacity in as little as four or five weeks at a very low intensity exercise walking, which normally would not cause adaptation in most individuals. So for example, I had a patient that had, a, um, that had experienced a stroke he could walk about four or five minutes at a time without feeling like he was going to uh, fall and had fallen a few times. And of course we know that when we have this increased risk of fall, we have increased risk of fracture and further uh, problems down the line. And so he came to me and he was asking for a way to be able to do two things what he wanted to accomplish. He wanted to be able to number one, go quail hunting with his buddies. He wanted to be able to walk long enough to be able to do the things that he loves to do, which with his friends was quail hunting. And the other thing that he wanted to do was he wanted to be able to take the dog out for a walk with his wife. That's what he did every night until this, uh, of his life, until this happened. And it was really having a negative effect on him psychologically. So I said, okay, um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna get your heart rate reserve, which is a, a certain percentage of um, effort, which is what we're using is about 30% heart rate reserve. We're gonna walk on the treadmill with the cuffs inflated around both legs. And we're gonna do one minute with you holding on, one minute with you not holding on. And what we did was over the course of about four or five weeks, we were able to build him up from that four or five minutes without feeling like he was going to fall to about that 20 to 25 minutes where he felt he was um, successfully adapting to that low intensity exercise, which then carried over to activities of daily living. And that's just one of many examples. Um, but that was very profound because he was so limited in what he could do and he really needed something to help him um, translate from the rehab setting to life. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that example. I'm wondering if there's, uh, I would imagine it would be a similar cardiovascular improvement if you're working on the arms instead of the legs, which are obviously much bigger muscles. 
but the effect might be uh, lim not as as profound as using the legs. Would that be the case? Um, actually, I don't see that. I, I think that, um, like, so if a patient comes in and they're post-surgical, uh, let's say hip or knee, mm -hmm. what I'll do is I'll put the cuffs on the upper arms and then we'll do like an upper body ergometer, just like we would do mm -hmm. um, in the gym. And your heart rate, because you are so close to the heart, that upper body work um, goes up, that heart rate drastically increases, like very, very quickly. And it's very hard to even control the heart rate when you are working it. So I think you can get very similar results um, using the upper body versus the lower body. Now I will say one caveat to doing the lower body is that researchers have found when I put the cuffs around both legs and I go for this walk, not only do I improve aerobic capacity, but they have also seen increased cross-sectional area or hypertrophy of the thigh. And they've also seen increase in strength at the hip and knee. And what that translates to me is if I can increase your strength with just walking for 15 minutes a couple times a week, then that's also going to help translate to a decrease in fall risk. And so um, things that have been measured like, um, like the sit to stand test and um, stand up and go test and other things have shown that that also improves. So we're seeing increases in strength and aerobic capacity at the same time with a very simple exercise like walking. Yeah, and then the extension of that would be falling down if they, uh, especially on their hip, and they increase their risk for hip fracture. Uh, and the population that is really, I think, going to benefit from this most, the elderly, uh, that's a significant issue. So why don't you comment on the, the impact, at least in your experience, personal experience or review of the literature, of the effect of blood flow restriction training on reducing osteoporosis or improving bone density? Yeah, that's, it's such a great, great topic. Um, we know that it does improve uh, osteoblast formation or the formation of bone, um, can help prevent uh, further degradation of bone density. Um, there's many pathways associated with it, including capillarization and other things. Uh, but the primary thing I think that helps it the most is when, when we inflate the cuff and we've got the swelling into the limb, because the swelling is all around in all the tissue, it's, you've, you've got the bone surrounded 360 degrees all around the bone, and that creates a stress on the bone. And what, what that does is when we stress the bone, now the body has to respond by stimulating bone growth. And so I think Wolf's Law comes into effect through that mechanism, in addition to the physiological adaptations that are occurring, which we're not totally sure of, but uh, appears that hypoxia or the decrease in oxygenation um, also stimulates. Um, there's uh, stimulation in vascular endothelial growth factor that occurs, uh, numerous cascades that are happening. There's something magical about creating a, an environment where there's not enough oxygen and the body has to adapt due to that. And that magic was further elucidated uh, as we're recording this interview yesterday when they awarded the 2019 Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology. I'm not sure if you saw that, but it was for this very reason. Well, um, I didn't see that. The oxygenation responses in VEGF, HIF1-alpha, and erythropoietin. So it, 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 you know, science is really, really identifying these crucial variables that improve our health. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I definitely. And I, I think it is really the body thinks because you're in a hypoxic environment that uh, you're doing high intensity exercise. And so if we know we're doing high intensity exercise, or at least if we think we are, the body thinks that it has to run away from a saber toothed tiger tomorrow. It has to repair as quickly as possible for survival. And there is something around the repair and the regeneration that occurs in that hypoxic environment that we're creating that allows for these faster adaptations and this improvement in uh, physiological function. Okay, so I wanna go into those details deeper, but later on, what I wanna understand now is why in 2012, because this is really intriguing to me, that you would come to the conclusion that that seems to me counterintuitive that to not follow the people who innovated this, like Sato and the Japanese, and use these elastic bands, Mm -hmm. but really are using a rigid band Mm -hmm. that is much wider. Not only is it not elastic, but it's wider because the Katsu system has a relatively narrow band and elastic. So why don't you first discuss the differences between those two types of bands and then why you chose to go down the route you're doing now? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, it, it was a lot of it was when I'm experimenting with different modalities and I'm unsure of them, my first tendency is to go to the literature. What is the literature suggesting? What has been studied? What hasn't been studied? And um, when, I, when I went there, there's, there was really a hodgepodge of different types of modalities being used to occlude the blood flow. And, you know, Katsu really, although it has been in the U.S., it really wasn't sticking out to me. You know, when we're doing these searches for different things online, we kind of expect something to hit us in the face like, hey, yeah, this is available. And it, there really wasn't there wasn't a resource, there wasn't something except for very, very, very expensive um, modalities that frankly, I, until I'm confident that something works, I really am hesitant to spend the money. And yeah, so- I think if I could just inter- interject here that the original COTS equipment when it came out was somewhat uh, clunky and it was I think over $5,000, maybe even more. Is that mm-hmm. what you're recalling? Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so what, what I first did was, um, based on the recommendation of my buddy that I had mentioned before, he had mentioned a certain type of band. Um, and um, so I ordered those and I started utilizing them. And what I first noticed was that exercise didn't seem to be that hard. And I was actually using the cuffs on all four limbs. Mm-hmm. and it still wasn't that hard. Like I would feel something, but it wasn't what I was expecting. It wasn't what I was really thinking I was going to experience from an acidic environment that I thought I would be creating. And what I discovered was that these, when we have these cuffs is what I like to call them, the diaphragm in here if it's not a full diaphragm, if it's not one, one individual diaphragm, then when you put this around the limb, it creates these little spaces in the cuff. And then the accumulation of metabolites distal to the cuff or, or closer to my hand can still escape. 
And what I found was that it wasn't truly occluding blood flow. It wasn't truly occluding arterial flow. And so it wasn't creating the hypoxic environment. Now, my veins were sticking out like crazy. And so what we know is that because the veins are more closer to the surface or more superficial, they're much easier to occlude. The deeper pressure is what's needed in order to get to the arterial flow to really create that hypoxic environment that we have already said is very beneficial. And so some of the other literature that came out was that if we use a very narrow band, less than five centimeters, then it requires much higher pressures in order to occlude the arterial flow. And so I wanted to use something that was wider so I didn't need so much pressure, especially if I was going to use this with my compromised patients or people that maybe had a few um, relative contraindications, not absolute contraindications. And so I wanted something that was as safe as possible. And so basically we developed something that was wider, that had that full diaphragm and that- hey, could, By diaphragm, are you referring to the bladder inside the, did you inflate the air into? Yes, yes, the bladder that is in there and that, that gets inflated with the air. And something that we could find limb occlusion pressure with. When you have those little segments or those, um, the little segmented uh, bladder, then when you inflate it, you really can't find true limb occlusion pressure. And so I was never able to quantify with my patients what a safe and effective pressure was. We were using something called arbitrary pressures. And realistically, I was under what I like to call undercooking people, not using enough pressure to occlude and I wasn't getting the benefit that I really um, wanted to see. And so we needed something wider. We needed something that had that, that full diaphragm or bladder that could be inflated and that I could measure limb occlusion pressure using a Doppler to know exactly what each individual's limb occlusion pressure was, not just their individual, but both in both limbs, like side to side, that can be affected. Um, but also in different positions like standing or sitting or lying down, depending on what position of exercise I was putting somebody in. Okay, and just, uh, <clears throat> I'd like you to expand on the Doppler assessment of the arterial occlusion pressure, sure. uh, because many people, I mean, I'm sure they've heard of it, but they may not be familiar with how that would look or, you know. Sure, let me grab one. So this is a very simple handheld Doppler. It's um, auditory only, so it's just, you're just able to hear. So you should be able to hear that. And when I'm looking to find a pulse, I just use the head and I can use a little bit of gel. You're over the radial artery? I'm over the radial artery. And in the lower leg, we typically use the dorsalis pedis or the tibialis posterior artery. Now, when I have the cuff on and I inflate the cuff, why don't I do that? Yeah, nice demo. And, and that cuff looks to be about the size of a blood pressure cuff. Is that correct? Uh, pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. 
My guess is, and I think we had this discussion offline, is that if you are using a blood pressure cuff, that's a pretty close assessment of what your arterial occlusion pressure would be. It is close. And there is a uh, relationship between systolic blood pressure and your limb occlusion pressure. It's not perfect, but there is a, uh, there is a relationship. All right, so I'm going to see if you can hear this. Yes, can hear it right quite clearly. Now I'm inflating it. Yeah, so it's going to introduce some artifact. Would it, would it be... You know, when they measure blood pressure, they usually inflate the cuff to significantly higher than what they anticipate it to be and then gradually let the air out. Would it, that be a little simpler way to do it? It could be. And I, and I tend, what happens is every time that I pump, pump this up, it goes to a certain point. Eventually, I go beyond it. And I kind of know after doing this for so yeah, yeah. long about where it will be. And because this is still plugged in, even if I go beyond it, it'll start to come down and then you'll okay. hear where it starts to turn back on again. And that's your limb occlusion pressure. Mm -hmm. And then we use that as the high end, hundred percent. And we use a percentage of that to exercise that. So in the upper extremity, we use 50% limb occlusion pressure in the lower extremity. We use 80% limb occlusion pressure. Okay. You might want to deflate. So yeah, well, my, my, yeah, I was uh, starting to feel it. <laughs> I could, I was, I was getting ready to go to the pool later, you know, so I wanted to get that little pump going before. Yeah, I yeah. Do you wear these when you swim? I personally do not. I, I was a wrestler in college. I am the worst swimmer and basketball player on the earth. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know many people that do. And I know some therapists that utilize it in the pool with their, um, with their patients and their athletes. Yeah, so it's a, something like walking. Instead of walking, you could swim with them and you know, yeah. get the same benefits. You're essentially multitasking it from an exercise perspective and getting even more benefit. Absolutely, yeah, it's uh, really beneficial. And of course, it's unloading the joints even further when you're swimming, and so you don't create as much stress into an area that somebody maybe can't tolerate those high stresses. And that's what this is, why this is so beautiful, and it's, um, it's just life-changing for people. All right, so I, I want to finish up the comparison between the Katsu and the system. What is the name of your system that, you, that you're using? Yeah, this is the Smart Cuff system. Smart Cuff and system. It's, uh, manufactured here in the United States. There's only two FDA-listed um, tourniquets, class one tourniquets, it's really medical devices, how it's listed um, in the United States. There's two of them. There's ours, the, uh, the Smart Cuff system, and there's also the Delphi system out of Canada. Uh, we manufacture ours out of Cleveland. Um, we're able to measure that limb, limb occlusion pressure. We use the wider widths in order for uh, decreased pressures, which I think is important because the higher pressures you need to use, the more risk you are to structures below the cuff. Um, and the width also adds to some comfort because the wider they are, the more comfortable they are. Uh, the more narrow they are, the more easy it is to move the limb. And so there's a, there's a give and take. And so we had to say, well, what is reasonable for the decreases in pressures necessary, but also what is reasonable for um, 
movement, like doing shoulder presses and curls and tricep extensions and other things. And where, where are you putting the cuff on? Because normally with the smaller bands, you're putting it just uh, proximal to the biceps and distal to the deltoid. But obviously that, that band is going to exceed that gap there. So there's a, that little narrow gap that you can put in. So you yeah. tend to move as close as you can to the armpit. Yeah, right below the deltoid tubercle, um, the insertion point of the deltoid. So that's, okay. that's where I am right there. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's where you put the, the proximal portion of the cuff is. Correct. And in okay. the lower extremity, right below uh, the greater trochanter. So I bring it all the way up the okay. limb as high as I can. Okay, great. So um, I want to continue that comparison with the katsu. Um, so have you worked with a katsu system before? I have not. Like a, no, it's I have not. Over eight years, you never, you never got a chance to work with. That would be interesting. Yeah, but, no, and I, I think that there's a, a lot of stuff will work. I, I don't, yeah. and there's a, I think there's a lot of good. I like the Delphi system. I like a lot of the products as long as you can measure limb occlusion pressure and as long as you can trap those metabolites and create the aerobic environment, and I, and they're safe. Great. Yeah. Like you. Well, we're going to safety in a minute, but. I want to get back to the FDA approval. Now, is the smart cuffs uh, system that you're using now, is that approved for blood flow restriction training or is it, is it a, a, approved as a surgical device for surgical occlusion to, to, uh, for limbs during surgery? Yeah, so it's FDA listed as a class one medical device, which is the requirement for it to be a, uh, a, an occlusion, a, a blood occlusion, occlusion device. Okay, so. And was that grandfathered in under the previous existing ones? Because I, th I think it's quite a bit to get an initial indication for that. But once, uh, once a company does it initially, then you can basically use their data to support yours as a qualifying. Correct. We had a different product that our, we originally had come up with earlier, um, which was an instrument-assisted soft tissue um, uh, set of tools that therapists or chiropractors or massage therapists would use. And we had gotten FDA listing. We were the only FDA listed um, instrument assisted stainless steel tool available. And so we were able to then use that. So that's kind of our thing is that we want to make things in America that are FDA listed or approved um, that uh, are very, very high quality, but are also very affordable because before the affordability of most of these BFR systems was so high that like, for example, the Delphi system, which is an awesome system, mm -hmm. one cuff is right around $6,000 plus, <laughs> plus you have to take the training from a certain individual, um, which I understand he's the distributor and he wants people to utilize them safely, but your $7,000 plus or minus a few hundred dollars there, even to get started. And if you're not even sure, um, it's a lot of money. And so we, we never saw that the trickle down effect into the small clinic like mine with people utilizing it. And we wanted to bring it out to the, to the greater population because we think that the technology is so valuable. <clears throat> Does the Delphi system have any other interesting uh, upgrades? Like, uh, is it computerized? Can you, does it inflate and deflate by itself or does it have a hand pump also? It does. It's, it's a very cool system. It has a built-in Doppler. Um, so once it measures your LOP, then it takes a percentage of that and then it auto, auto inflates. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very cool system. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was create a system that didn't require that computer to be attached to it. Because, you know, when we're working with athletes out on the field or in a rehab setting, we don't want, you know, two 
computerized systems that are now worth about $11,000 on this athlete and them moving around or trying to jump in a pool or, yeah. um, and so we wanted something that we could detach and then utilize. And that's why a lot of the universities have gone to our system is because the athletic trainers can be on the football field during practice and do their rehab and not have these expensive pieces of equipment on their athletes. And they can also send their athletes home uh, with cuffs in order for them to do home exercise as well. And so uh, we purposely took the took those kind of those cool gadgets, like those are really cool, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get better results, nor has any literature suggested that you get better results, as long as you're finding the limb occlusion pressures, which we are doing um, with both systems. Okay, so the Delphi is about 6,000 and- For the, one cuff. For one cuff, so double that for two. Mm -hmm. and. The Doppler is relatively inexpensive. That's about $150 or so. Mm -hmm. And what is the, what do the smart cuffs go for? So we have three different types of uh, cuffs. We have um, just what we call a basic set, which is just two cuffs, the pump, and a carrying case. And that runs right around, uh, it's right around $350. Mm -hmm. And then we have a four cuff system. So you could have two in the uppers, two in the lowers, a pump carrying case um and that runs right around 600 mm -hmm. then we have a clinical set which has five different sizes 10 cuffs total carrying carrying kit pump with the doppler and that is 1500 dollars. okay great all right well that's certainly a lot more reasonable and rational than a twelve thousand dollar investment um so in the eight years that you've been doing this, I'm wondering uh, if you've had individuals come to you who've bought the inexpensive bands that are on the internet and get them on Amazon. Yeah. And uh, what your experience with that has been. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I only last week I had a patient contact me who had found out about blood flow restriction training from you, from your website. <laughs> and he, um, he wanted to learn more about how to know what pressure to use and all those other things. And he came in with his own set of, um, his own set of straps and that he had bought off the internet. Um, I explained to him why I thought that, he hadn't started utilizing yet because he didn't know how much pressure to use in those things. And, um, and so he, I told him why I thought I was happy to show him, but I, I really thought that he should invest in, in something that we could find that limb occlusion pressure with. And, um, he decided to, and because we did a comparison just for comfort wise with the narrow, more narrow cuff versus, um, the wider cuff and he, and he, he could feel a large difference, um, with those. And so he decided to go with those. Like I said before, you, you we've seen in the literature benefits using things like voodoo floss, like uh, knee wraps. Um, Dr. Lonicky out of the University of Mississippi has, has looked at utilizing some of these different things. You'll still get a benefit. I, I still think that you can create some of that hypoxic environment. Mm -hmm. um, but I just don't think it's as, it's as drastic of an improvement. And I also think when, we're, when we are in a medical setting like I am, that I really need to quantify those numbers for safety and for um, efficacy. Okay, and just to finish up on this topic, uh, it would seem, it's sort of an extension of what you were describing earlier with the inflatable bladder, that it's able to pretty much effectively completely occlude the venous return to the heart 
allowing for the accumulation of these metabolites, which seem to produce the physiological benefits. And the fact that it's wider, uh, actually, and, and rigid, not elastic, allows for that to occur because in, in the Katsu system or any elastic bands, when you contract your muscle, that contraction will essentially force the blood return back to the heart, even though the initial, it's initially restricted. It won't be once you do the contraction. Is, is yeah. that your experience? And that's um, what would be described as the muscle pumping effect. Yeah. Um, now, I think that you can use, a, if something has a little bit of elasticity to it, I think it's okay. I think that you can still get the effect. Um, but I do find that the rigid is able to trap those metabolites better. And there are some protocols that we use in the clinic that we don't exercise at all. That you're just putting the cuffs on, like for somebody that has a cast on and they can't move their limb. Like if I have a cast mm -hmm. on my arm and I can't move my limb at all, then I wanna try to do something so that when I take that cast off, I haven't lost all that muscle mass from that six weeks of disuse. So what we call disuse atrophy, to prevent that, I can use the cuffs in a non-exercise protocol. I would inflate the cuffs, allow some blood flow in, no venous return out. That creates that stimulation around the area in order to cause cellular swelling, um, stimulates protein synthesis to maintain muscle mass, but also has that bone healing effect like we were talking about before. Um, and so I want to have a system that I can trap those metabolites for, for, um, for circumstances like that. When I have patients that have non-union fractures, that have um, scenarios where they can't weight bear, maybe they're bedridden, um, and I can maintain muscle mass for those folks. Yeah, so I want to dive into that section because I think it's really intriguing and has pretty much as much value as using it for hypertrophy and strength. And that is for rehabilitation. So it mentioned the disuse atrophy that typically is almost universally seen when you have a cast on because you're not exercising that muscle. So I'd like you to relate your experiences on using it for those types of treatments and also to incorporate the crossover, the cross training effect, because mm -hmm. even though you can't exercise that specific limb, you've got three other limbs you can work out. Absolutely. And, and people, the, if you just look at this superficially, you would initially believe that that's, you're only going to get benefits in the muscles that are being occluded. That's just not the case. So why don't you take it from there? Sure. So we have three different effects um, that we have found in the literature for using the cuffs. Um, the, again, I like to put a cuff on, especially if people aren't familiar with BFR, because it, it just, I think it helps to give you a visual about what's, what's happening. So I'm putting this cuff on and this could be here or it could be in my, on my leg and I inflate it to my percentage of limb occlusion pressure, there's the three benefits that we have seen are, are number one, distal to the cuff or away from the heart, anything below the cuff because that's where the blood flow is not returning. And again, like you said, that, that, that makes sense. What a lot of patients ask me is like, well, if I put the cuff here, then do I get a benefit here? And the answer is yes, that would be, some, that would be benefits proximal to the cuff or closer to the heart or closer to the midline to the cuff. And then like you mentioned, we also get benefits, what we call crossover, meaning I work this shoulder and I get benefits over here. And we utilize this in rehab a lot when this shoulder has been immobilized. Like I have a patient that I'll go see as a home visit tonight, just had surgery last week 
she is six weeks, no, sorry, eight weeks in a bolster. She's not moving this arm, but I can do things over here that I'll get the crossover effect. I can do things with her legs and she can walk with the cuffs on, so low intensity. She can do things for um, other extremities, like you mentioned, to try to maintain her muscle mass and, and, and maintain that capacity as an entity. I think one of the things as a rehab professional that I fell into a, a trap and that trap was somebody comes in for an elbow problem and they're an elbow or they're a shoulder or they're a knee or they're an ankle or they're a hip or they're a low back or they're a neck. And the cuffs have really expanded my thinking to it's not you're they're not just individual joints. I'm not a carpenter. This is a system. And if I can maintain somebody's muscle mass and I can maintain their cardiac capacity, even while they're injured, so that when we're trying to return them to normal capacity, they'll be able to get to normal capacity much, much faster. But also psychologically, there's a huge benefit to people that are given the green light to do things, to just exercise. And we know that exercise in all forms is probably the greatest analgesic. And so to keep people active and keep people healthy, I need to look at them beyond what their injured tissue is and look at them as a whole body organism and maintain their capacity the best that I can. So if I wanna work a shoulder, I can use this. If I wanna work a hip, even though the, the cuff is really below the glutes or the hip muscles, I can use this in order to use those light intensity exercises to maintain muscle mass and improve strength and size. So what has been your clinical experience in treating people with fractures that uh, their limb is occluded in a cast, or not occluded, but in a, in a cast uh, mm -hmm. where they can't flex? Sure. So I'm sure you've treated many people like that in the last eight years. So what did, what did you typically experience? What do you typically experience without the blood flow restriction and what do you see with it? Sure. Um, most of the patients that get referred to me for this type of treatment are having a risk of um, non-union. And so... And non-union means the fracture hasn't healed yet. Correct. The non-union is the fracture hasn't healed or they're afraid it won't heal and the bone's not going to come fully together to heal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're, they're possibly looking at surgery or other things in order to bring that bone and approximate it. Um, I have not had a failure yet from any patient that I've seen when we've utilized, I'm not saying that's solely because of BFR, um, but I haven't had anybody come in for this type of treatment and not see a benefit from a bone healing standpoint, from a point of taking off the cast and um, maintaining muscle mass, um, and just an overall feeling like they're being active in their rehab versus, okay, just keep this cast on for six or eight weeks and then, you know, we'll do the best we can when, when you're done. Yeah, so typically if a person removes that cast in six or eight weeks and is not uh, engaging blood flow restriction training, uh, there'll be quite a dramatic loss in muscle mass. And that's why I would want you to comment on that versus the person who was using it, which essentially they actually could gain muscle mass. And have you ever seen it to the point where they're gaining so much muscle mass that the cast becomes too small for them? <laughs> no, I haven't, I haven't seen that. Um, the, I don't know if we can actually gain without act, without contraction of the um, muscle okay. fibers. We can, 
the best that I've seen is about a 95% maintenance of okay. uh, muscle wasting. So I don't, I don't, I've never seen it. I've never seen hypertrophy occur without actually utilizing it. It's more of just maintain, maintaining. Okay. Uh, significant because within 10 days of disuse, we can lose about 30% of our muscle mass. It's um, so, crazy. It's crazy. Now think about this. And we had this discussion offline about demand versus capacity. We start losing aerobic capacity at about day seven and we start losing strength and size right around that day 10. So I tell somebody to take four or six weeks off. <laughs> they're, they're, they're way in a hole. Now, I have so many athletes that come to me that they, they fracture something second week of the season and you know, they want to come back by the end of the season. We can, we can do that safely because we're maintaining that muscle mass. And by the time that cast is off and that bone is healed, you know, a week or two of rehab and they're back participating versus, Oh, the season is lost because I, you know, had a humeral fracture. Yeah. I want you to, to expand on the use for rehabilitation because it's my understanding, I think through Mario Novo, who I also interviewed that most all professional sports teams, every sport is engaging this modality in, in their rehab departments. Yeah. And I, I, I know who we have been in contact with. I know who I've trained. I've been at Stanford university. I've been at you know, lots of different universities and lots of different um, sports medicine programs. Um, I would say most division one, um, most professionals um, are utilizing BFR. And, you know, now we're seeing more and more hospital systems and that trickling down is, is definitely occurring. I don't, I don't have exact statistics on who is and who isn't. It's really about who their director of sports medicine is and are they, are they on board? Have they been educated? But what we've seen is that three years ago when we'd go to the National Athletic Trainers Association or went to, um, um, you know, big physical therapy um, conferences and, and either I spoke about it or, you know, we were trying to teach people about it, they didn't know about it. And now the last two years, that's not the case. Most people in the rehab world have at least heard about it. Doesn't mean that they've um, they've practiced it or they've used it with their patients, but they've at least heard about it and want to know more about it. Uh, the other day I had, I think about 200 people in my class, um, in Dallas. And I had about, you know, 25% had heard about it or used it or used it on themselves. Um, and the other 75 had not, but it had, you know, it piqued their curiosity on how we're able to get these increases um, in strength and hypertrophy so quickly. Yeah, and that Dallas event you're referring to is actually how I found out about you. It was Parker University, mm -hmm. and uh, I was giving a presentation. At the end of my presentation, I included a brief comment about BFR and asked the audience who had heard of it, and I was just, I almost fell off the stage when I saw 25% of the hands go up because I've never, never seen it before. It's typically one or two people in a group of several hundred to several thousand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and interestingly, the president of the university, uh, Bill Morgan, uh, you had put him on a system about a month ago. And this is a, Bill Morgan is a pretty interesting guy. I thought when I first met him, I thought he was overweight, but it turns out he bicep curls, 125 pound dumbbells. Yeah. <laughs> he's a big jerk. He's no jerk. Yeah. So he's, he couldn't say enough good things about it. And he's right at the age 
where you would expect a diminution of the microcirculation to the type two muscle fiber stem cells. So he's not getting that pump. He's not getting the benefits. I mean, he's doing the work. There's not many people uh, like him at that age that can do that type of work. Well, the, the, the primary benefit of BFR is that it, it just opens the world of high intensity strength training to almost everyone. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to get injured. Correct. So then Bill's starting to experience it again. I mean, he couldn't be more pleased. He was just absolutely mm -hmm. tickled peak and a great advocate of this work. Yeah, well, he's, he's just a special individual. And, um, you know, I was just fortunate enough that he would allow me to share what I'm passionate about. And uh, he trusted me enough to kind of take him through what I wanted him to do. And, um, and yeah, and he's, he's, uh, he's living proof right there. He just needs higher weights because, I mean, this is a guy that dumbbell presses one or curls 125, and he was only curling 25 pounds. So, I, you know, I'm sure he's gonna, you've got, a, got him going up. But, I mean, I could even do 25 pounds. And I, so let's go into the protocol and how do you do this. Yes. So I think we've established that this is an unbelievable, magnificent modality that really everyone – I can't believe anyone that wouldn't benefit from this or certainly someone they know would benefit from this, especially their parents. Mm -hmm. uh, to treat sarcopenia, which is just an epidemic. And, you know, once you lose muscle mass, your risk of developing complications from just normal activities or even, God forbid, going to the hospital, the likelihood radically decreases that you're going to come out alive if you don't have a significant muscle mass because your reserve is just gone. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to build up the reserve. and There's nothing finer than this strategy. So why don't you walk people through how you would engage them to do this. And I guess there's a wide range of people, people who are fit like Bill at 60 years old, mm -hmm. or those who are el more elderly and really can't use any weights. Sure, there's, I, I will say that, I mean, I, I was a division one wrestler. I understand what it's like to put my body through a lot of pain mm -hmm. and discomfort and, um, you're still not prepared for how difficult it can be to lift very light loads when you're using <laughs> that includes the artery because it's uncomfortable. Now what the research suggests is it takes three visits to, for your body to start getting used to using this. Interesting. Um, and so what I do is called an on-ramp program, meaning I am not going to have somebody do too many exercises at too high of a pressure too quickly. I need about three visits and let them ease into them. What I like to say is I undercook folks before I overcook them. I can always throw you back on the grill, but if I make that meat, you know, well done, um, I'm not a very good host. So first visit, what it kind of looks like is I think that limb occlusion pressures should be established both in sitting in in lying and in standing bilaterally. I think the thorough does it, history- does it, does it change that much? That, that's surprising. I wouldn't have expected that, that would change. Yes, sir, it sure does. Um, especially when you start contracting like in an upright position, a gravitational position around the quad and hamstring, you're gonna see uh, higher, and it, which surprises people because you would think, well, I take the blood pressure, it should go, should go down, but it doesn't. It's, um, it, it goes up because of the contraction, at least 30% cross-sectional um, contraction just to fight gravity. And so um, we get this increase in pressure. The other thing that we see in the rehab setting is that, and why I think using an LOP is so important versus using an arbitrary pressure, is that when people are injured, that limb typically will atrophy a little bit 
And so the pressures may be different on one side versus the other. So I want to know what I'm starting with. Uh, number two, a thorough history, I think, needs to be done. I think um, making sure that there are no contraindications, that there are no increased risks, and if there are, that those are thoroughly discussed with the patient, um, and, and the whole reason why we are doing this. Then um, I introduced- wait, wait, before, before we go on, let me just stop you there, because I, I wanted to discuss this earlier, and I neglected, I forgot. Sure. was the, the risk of doing this. And it kind of goes into the good history that you just mentioned. So there are some risks. There are some serious risks. And the two primary ones would be a hypertensive crisis that can contribute to a stroke or even a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And then also a blood clot, which could kill someone. Sure. So, well, why don't you discuss, expand on those risks and then and describe what you'd ask in the history to identify the population that's uh, most likely to experience that. Sure. Um, the way that I break it down, to make it a little bit easier to learn um, is I have five categories of risk or what I call like five pillars. My first pillar is, is this individual at any increased risk for uh, thrombus, uh, for a clot? And if we look at the literature and we say, okay, well, who are those people that are more at risk for a clot? We look at Virchow's triad. One of those would be stasis, meaning that there's been a time or a period where that individual has um, had blood being occluded. And wh what does that show up to in my clinic? Typically that's immediately post-surgical. Uh, most people that have just had surgery uh, in the orthopedic setting um, are at a slight increased risk for, um, for clotting. So I need, to, I need to know, first of all, how, you know, how long ago was the surgery? How long was the tourniquet on during that surgery? Um, another one that I see a lot is people just traveled. So if they just traveled from Europe yesterday, they're on a plane for long periods of time. My tendency is to wait a few days in, in order for them to kind of normalize because we do know that that stasis can create an increased risk. Um, so any situation where there has been, um, pooling, uh, another one might be long duration bed rest. I might be have an increased risk is there uh, as well there. Second on Verschel's triad is um, any type of uh, vessel damage. So was there a crush injury on that limb? Was there, um, uh, was there a graft done, uh, like a venous graft in that limb? Was there um, uh, a, um, anything that I would think would cause damage to the vessels um, in that limb that I'm going to occlude? that would raise my awareness. Um, and then other ones would just be like poor circulation. Like, um, you know, is there a lack of hair growing on the, the bottom of the, the legs? Is there poor pulses? Are there um, varicosities? Other, it's not contraindicated to do it in those folks, but it would wear, uh, raise my awareness of um, that they are at a slight increase in risk. And so I'm gonna probably use lighter pressures to start, see how they tolerate, um, and make sure that it is safe for them to continue. I personally have had varicosities, um, they're congenital. I have, uh, have had numerous of them removed. I still use BFR on my lower limb and have no problems with them, um, but I would still just have that awareness that they are at an increased risk. The second, uh, kind of pillar that you talked about was 
um, cardiovascular risk. And that cardiovascular risk, if the first kind of the, the first question is, is, are there any restrictions on high intensity exercise from your physician? Because if somebody is cleared for high intensity exercise, their heart rate or their blood pressure is not going to get anywhere near that it would with blood flow restriction training. So I already know that if they're cleared for high intensity exercise cardiovascularly, they are cleared for BFR. Numerous studies have looked at, hey, how high does this heart rate go up? How high does the blood pressure go up? And it's not near what it does during high intensity exercise. Now, if there's any question, what I do is I take a blood pressure before and I take a blood pressure after the first exercise and I see what happened. I think that's a reasonable approach to see how is the system uh, dealing with uh, BFR. I think another reasonable approach is if somebody is borderline hypertensive or maybe it's not being as controlled as it should be, then we keep exercises to single joint and keep them non-weight bearing. If I do a squat with somebody, like an air squat, compared to somebody doing a long arc quad exercise or like a quad extension off the edge of the table, there's gonna be a big difference in what cardiovascular stress is occurring. And so I will keep that in mind when I'm dosing and when I'm uh, choosing which exercises uh, to do. Okay, the third one, okay. The third one is tourniquet risk. So meaning, am I using a, a cuff or a strap or whatever we're using to occlude? Is there any adherent risk from using that? Meaning, is there anything underneath that tourniquet um, at an increased risk for, um, for damage, like a vessel or something? Is, there, um, is the cuff width not wide, so I'm going to use a lot higher pressures? Um, is, uh, is the length only one length? So just there's not multiple lengths in order to have not um, lots of bunching of the um, fabric or the material. Because if I do that, I'm going to require much higher pressures in order to occlude the artery. Um, so I try to reduce my tourniquet risk by using an FDA listed um, cuff because that's going to basically reduce most of my tourniquet risk. Um, and then also utilizing it over the top of clothes, I think is beneficial. I think using, having something underneath so I don't irritate the skin, especially in older individuals. So what I tend to use is either clothes or I will use a dual ply uh, tensor bandage like we would have in the athletic training room that would use compression to try to reduce the amount of swelling. It's just some sort of layer so that way it protects the skin. And so those are kind of the categories that I would keep people in you know, I'm really concerned mostly about um, people that are showing signs of poor circulation. And in those cases, I will keep the exercises, uh, the number of exercises lower, like maybe one or two to start, see how they, how they tolerate. Um, and then also making sure that I'm only using the amount of pressure necessary for the occlusion required uh, that is both safe and effective. Okay, so <clears throat> just an interesting thought that occurred to me as you were mentioning these contraindications is uh, post-surgical because uh, the katsu people uh, are strongly advocating this pre and post-surgical and noticing unbelievable recoveries from the surgery. Mm -hmm. I mean, reductions in like literally 50% of the time that you would expect. Sure. So I'm thinking because of the benefits of BFR and, and then balancing that with the risk that that might be one of the indications when you wouldn't want to use the wide rigid cuff and maybe go to a, a, thin, a less wide, thinner 
um, elastic bandage that would would not be would you know would allow you to implement the BFR under those circumstances. Yeah, I haven't had a problem with uh, utilizing uh, the cuffs post surgically. I think the things that I I mean, I definitely use it before as in a prehab setting when I can. Unfortunately, I don't get patients before surgery as often as I would like in order to get them ready for the surgery. And I think that something that's interesting is, um, is a technique that we use that's called ischemic preconditioning. And ischemic preconditioning is creating a hypoxic environment into the limb that is going to be uh, surgically repaired. So let's say somebody's having ACL surgery. And before surgery, using the cuffs in order to create a hypoxic environment that the body has to then learn how to deal with, so it prepares the person for a tourniquet during surgery, and there appears to be less, um, less damage to the tissue after surgery by, by applying this ischemic preconditioning prior to surgery. Um, the body gets used to that hypoxic environment and is able to deal with it much better when it's had multiple dosages. So it makes sense to do that prior to uh, surgery. What I might primarily- Excuse, excuse me for a second, because I'm just curious because I'm not a surgeon and I don't particularly care for surgery, but in, in yeah. that surgery described like an ACL repair, would they typically occlude the blood flow with a tourniquet, surgical tourniquet? Correct. Yes. Okay. And then how, how frequently, or what's the optimum dosage and timing of ischemic preconditioning prior to surgery? Uh, well, ideally we would do it three times a week for, you know, four weeks prior. Okay. So it's, it's quite significant. Yeah. I mean, I, in that case, what I would have is some, a patient take a set of cuffs home and I would instruct them on exactly how to do it, how often, what pressures, mm -hmm. um, and have them do it on their own because, you know, mm -hmm. they don't, come into the clinic to do that. And, right. um, and then what we see right after those ACLs is the quadricep is so mushy. And a lot of that is due to uh, the damage that occurs from the reperfusion injury and um, other factors. And so getting the body ready is, is a great benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine hyperbaric would be good in that condition can, scenario too, because that's classically met, uh, recommended for uh, reperfusion injuries. Sure. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So I th thank you for allowing that uh, tangent. So sure. why don't you continue with the description of how you start people on this? You're mentioning that you don't want to uh, overcook them. So you yeah. start low with three visits and then work up. So why don't you take it from there? Sure. So, um, so my first visit, like I mentioned, get limb occlusion pressures, make sure everything is safe, get patient buy-in that, Hey, I want, this is what I want to do kind of prepare them. And my first visit might be just a cellular swelling protocol, which would be where I inflate the cuffs to a point where I am getting arterial flow in that's just a little bit of a trickle and I'm getting uh, no venous return. And why I would do this is to get them used to the cuff, get them used to me inflating them. In this case, there's no exercise involved. They're just, they're laying on the table or in my case, I have an IV lounge and they would go back into the lounge chairs, watch a little TV, and they would inflate and deflate at five minutes on, three minutes off. What this has been shown to do is create extracellular swelling, which then will push fluid into the muscle cell. When the, when the body and the brain receive the signal that these cells are swelling, it assumes that these, swell, these 
swollen cells are going to explode or die. And so the body sends uh, signals in order to regenerate these cells uh, through protein synthesis. So it's a way to get people ready for the exercise or uh, future exercise dosages. Um, yet I'm still seeing uh, benefit with that. My second visit then I might do um, a single uh, exercise, what I would call an isolated exercise, meaning if I was rehabbing a, a bicep, then they might just do a, a bicep curl. That might be one exercise. And the rep scheme that we do and what has been uh, kind of um, from you know thought leaders in BFR and what's been well published now is doing four sets of um, of different reps and rest. So I inflate the cuff, I do 30 reps, and it's a slow controlled rep. It's two seconds, two seconds with no hold in between. I would be using a very light weight, something no more than about 20% of somebody's one rep max. And they would do 30 reps, they would drop the weight, they would keep the cuffs inflated, and then they would rest for 30 seconds. And then they would do 15 reps with the same weight. And after they were done with 15, they would drop the weight. We would keep the cuff inflated and they would wait for 30 seconds. And then they would pick up the weight, do another 15 reps. After 15, they would drop the weight. They would wait for 30 seconds and they would do their last set or fourth set, this one of 15. They would drop the weight and then we would deflate the cuff. So that was a 30, 15, 15, 15 rep. Um, I've never taken them to failure. And the reason we wanna use a weight that doesn't take you to failure is that we don't wanna cause more damage to the tissue. We know when we take exercise to failure that there is more damage to the tissue. I wanna get the tissue tired. I wanna create metabolite accumulation. I wanna recruit type two muscle fibers but I don't want to cause more damage, especially in the rehab setting because that tissue is already damaged. I don't want to cause more damage. After that, I might go to a second exercise. In this case, typically if it was a bicep, I would pretty much bet that most of the muscle fibers are exhausted, they're fatigued. So there's no reason to hit that exercise group again. I would then go to probably a tricep exercise and I would do tricep in that same manner, 30, 15, 15, 15, and then deflate. Well, and let me just let me just interject here because you, you said it, but I think someone watching it may escape them, especially if there's a lot of things to put together here, but it's the speed at which you're doing it. Yes. It's two seconds down, two seconds up. It's not really fast. And you don't wait at the top and, and take the load off. So just wanted to emphasize that because that's really an important part of the equation. It is. Thank you. Yeah, you're 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 keeping a lot of time under tension. You're 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 creating this metabolite accumulation. You're creating uh, an acidic environment, and that is really helping you recruit more motor units. And what I think is the number one benefit from all of this is creating fatigue in the tissue. And in a rehab setting, very rarely can I take somebody to fatigue. And very often patients will say to me, I was, I was rehabbing somewhere else. And although I can snatch 200 pounds, they were only having me use these very, very light resistance bands and things. And I never felt like I was 
stressing myself to the point of really rehabbing. And they don't get that. <laughs> they don't get that with the cops. They're going to feel like they've worked. And I know that I'm using the right weight and the right pressure when they've done those 75 reps and they're like, please get these off of me. I mean, like I'm ready for a little bit of a rest. And that's when we deflate and then move on to the next exercise. Can you comment on the burning sensation, which is an in indication that the, indeed the lactic acid is accumulated and causing that? Sure. There's, um, you, what happens when we create a hypoxic or a, um, an environment where there's not a lot of oxygen is that we switch from a energy system that is oxygen rich, the Krebs cycle, to an oxygen uh, poor, the Cori cycle. So a great example that I think most people can relate with is I get on a track and I start jogging at a very low speed. And I can breathe and I can talk and I can carry a conversation very, very well. At that dosage, I'm not gonna get too tired too quickly. Like I can, I can go pretty, pretty good time with that and it's not gonna bug me too much. I'm in a you know, fairly decent shape. Now I start to sprint. So I decide, hey, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna go and sprint. At some point during that sprint, you're gonna to start to feel a burn occur. For me, it's about a quarter of the way around a, a 440 track, a 440 meter track. Yeah, so, 100 meters. Yeah, about 100 meters, right. Yeah, you're gonna get about 10 seconds. I mean, I'm a little slow nowadays compared to my football days, but yeah, about 10 seconds, you're gonna to start to feel this burn. That's what we're looking for. That is the switch from uh, oxygen rich environment to a oxygen poor environment. And we start to switch to a different energy system that we're utilizing lactate in order to create ATP, not to get too crazy in jargon, and create the energy system necessary to continue exercise in an unoxygenated state. That's the burn that we are typically experiencing, which is that what I call the exercise acidosis state. Um, and that's where really magic is occurring. That's when we know we're in a hypoxic environment. That's when our brain starts to signal that we're in an acidic environment and starts to do things like, hey, release growth hormone. Uh, locally, we start to release insulin growth factor. Lots of different things that affect how we adapt to exercise starts to occur. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, something that I only recently appreciated, that, uh, that we know that you need insulin growth factor one to stimulate muscle growth. But I, as I think most people believe that was a systemic issue, but it's not. It's actually local within the muscle, and there's specific isoforms of that, 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 ends, that uh, protein that, that do this, but it's produced locally. And the reason that that's an important issue is because if you have really high levels of IGFM, one, that has been correlated pretty strongly with decreased longevity because mm -hmm. it inhibits autophagy. So it, it really reconciles the challenge that I was having in my mind and trying to, knowing that this was good for you, but then maybe, maybe it has some long-term negative consequences for longevity and it doesn't appear to. No, it doesn't appear to. This looks like um, it can really help with, um, with, tissue and cellular health. Yeah. So, but when the people are having this lactic acidosis locally in the muscle, how, I mean, what is your experience in their comments and observations? And do you ever have to disengage from the exercise prematurely because of the burn? Well, I used to, <laughs> I mean, 
um, when I was inexperienced and, um, and I didn't have a lot of clinical experience, yeah, I've overcooked people. That's why I try to teach a way of, you know, this on-ramp program I think is important that we take into consideration that this is difficult and it's okay just to do one or two exercises for the first couple sessions um, and get people used to, let their body get used to these cuts. Yeah. And then you can start to increase. And so you might do a couple isolated exercises for your first few sessions. And then I will introduce a multi-joint or a compound exercise. So using that upper body example, I might do a modified push-up, meaning I'm elevated up on my table over here. And so I can't do BFR push-ups like I did in the military, chest to deck. I can't do it. It's, it's too hard. I just can't. I can't do it. And so, really? I, no, I can't. If you're using even horizontal, not with your legs on the table. Oh no, not if you're at limb occlusion pressure. No way. Very, very few people. I've seen Navy SEALs fail. Uh, we've got somebody that's <laughs> medicine at uh, SEAL Team Ten. You can ask him. Like these guys that are super, super fit to do true chest to deck push-ups is nearly impossible. Now I know with me saying this, every single person's going to try it. Please do. Um, but most of the time I've got to elevate somebody into a, a, a semi-reclined position so that they can do a pressing motion like that. But is a push-up really a good exercise with BFR? Because it's an example of exercise that, I mean, you, you gave the example where you need 75 repetitions and there's not many people are going to be doing 75 push-ups, especially with a BFR bands on. Absolutely. And that's why I think inclined is, you know, is good. Like, so if I was to do them on oh, my- you're, Oh, so you're- I was confused. I thought it was the other way. I thought your legs were on the table. It's your oh, arms. no, 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 no way. No way. No way. I, I see some stuff on Instagram. I see stuff on Facebook and people are doing these crazy extra. They're doing plyometrics with cuffs on. And the first thing I say to myself is they don't have limb occlusion pressure. They don't know. They're not getting... They're not getting occlusion because you can't do it. It's too, it, it's too intense. It's, it, there's no way. All right. All right. That's, that's the difference, folks. <laughs> that's the difference. That's, that's the difference between using a, 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 a medically listed, FDA listed cuff um, and really causing occlusion versus not. And it, it's, it's this whole hypoxic environment has to be created. Otherwise, why are we bothering? And, um, and we can't allow those metabolites to escape. We've got to create that acidic environment. It's got, you've got to feel the burn. And what I, I saw a great hashtag the other day was earn your deflate. And I think it was the, uh, I think it was the Owens recovery system folks that, that said that earn your deflate, meaning I'm at a weight and I'm at an occlusion that, yeah, by the time I'm done with that exercise, it's hard, it's difficult. And, um, I'm ready for a little rest here for a second. Get that oxygen back in there. It's one of the great pleasures of life is the release or relief of pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes, indeed. So how, so you can do the 75 push-ups uh, with that? And I guess if someone was even in less good shape, they would do them up against the wall? Sure, absolutely. Or I use the suspension trainer a lot. You can see mine back here. Mm -hmm. And I like I like the suspension trainer because... I can you figure you know, out how far back you're going to my position very quickly, and if they can't get through all those reps, then I can bring them more upright. Yeah. And so it's a very quick 
it's a very quick way to modify load. My tendency is to keep the pressure the same, but decrease the load. So if they're starting to fail, then my opinion is that we need to get the body used to that hypoxic environment. Don't deflate the cuff, mm -hmm. decrease the load. So they might drop the weights. They might just go to against the wall. They might do something. I want them to finish that, that rep scheme because it's so important to get them to failure. Um, the only time that I will decrease pressure is with extreme, um, uh, extreme numbness and tingling. I was trying to think of the non-medical word and, um, or their pain levels, discomfort levels get above an eight out of 10. If they're at that high of discomfort, I'm going to deflate. And the cool thing about our cuffs, full deflation or partial, just partial, just a little, the cool thing about our cuffs is that I've got this little, do that. right. Valve. And all I have to do is hit that once and you get about 10 millimeters of mercury reduction. So if somebody's saying like, my leg is totally going numb, no problem. I hit a little, little pressure, a little pressure, and then they can continue with their exercise and I don't have to take that whole band off. Or if it was a voodoo floss band, I'd have to take that whole thing off. You wouldn't yeah, yeah, yeah. just reduce. Excellent. So can you give some more examples of what the, now that you, you've given the system of, of how you're doing the exercise and that, can, that those principles apply to all the exercises and also the principle of using agonist and antagonist, like the biceps and the triceps. Uh, so can you give some other pairs of exercises you're recommending? Oh, like, sure. Would you yeah. do, would you do uh, bent over rows when you're doing the push-ups or, ch or, or chest, chest presses? Yeah, you absolutely can. I mean, you can do, um, I'm trying to think of some ones that I do a lot. So for like quad, quadricep wasting, mm -hmm. I love simple little long arc quad exercises. Um, and I'm, I'm literally using little ankle weights. <laughs> and a lot of times no weight at all the first couple of visits. And yeah. you're doing these long arc quads and I can be sitting there tapping on your vastus medialis oblique to make sure it's firing. I can be doing things as, you know, while I'm overseeing this thing to make sure that those muscles are all firing, all recruiting and all getting tired and everybody's part of the party. And, you know, when we're, we're getting bigger and stronger and increasing our capacity and being better organisms. So most people I would, I would suspect would have challenge challenges in building their upper body as opposed to their lower body. So I'm wondering if, if a comprehensive suite of upper body exercises combined with just doing the walking exercises is sufficient or do you feel pretty strongly that you need to integrate some lower extremity exercises like deadlifts or uh, calf raises, uh, squats? I, I think that it really depends on time. Like, you know, my typical patient I've got for about 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. So if I was to break that down and you know, a lot of times people are in pain with me. And so I've got a number one, I got to get their pain levels down. Now in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how quickly can I get them to exercise? Because exercise, like I mentioned before, is the great analgesic. But let's be honest, nobody wants to come to me to prescribe a bunch of exercise to them. What they want me to do is guide them and direct them and get my hands on them and then use some modalities that I have in order to help their pain levels drop enough 
to create what I call the, and other people call, the paraphysiological window, an, uh, an area that there's increased range of motion and a decrease in pain, and now I can exercise into that window. So maybe I spend my first 15 minutes, quick assessment, doing, um, this is a non-new patient. I, this, is, this would be like a follow-up. This is 15 or 20 minutes of manual therapy, whether that's in the soft tissue or things like I do, or like cupping or dry needling, or I use shockwave therapy, or I use active release technique, whatever the therapy is, then I would then progress to some sort of exercise, which would a lot of times be aerobic capacity. I might put them on the treadmill for 15 minutes with the cuffs, which exactly to your point, I'm getting two for one. I'm getting aerobic capacity and I'm getting strengthening of the lower limb. And then, so now I'm left with, let's say, 20 minutes or so. Now I can do two or three exercises because each of those 75 rep schemes takes about six minutes and 40 seconds. That 30, 15, 15, 15 with the 30-second rest in between and a one-minute rest takes about you know, six minutes and 40 seconds. So I can get three one, exercises. One-minute rest between the sets? Between the exercises. Oh, I exercise. Okay, I didn't realize that. I missed, missed that. Yeah, so I go, so inflate, 30 reps, Keep it inflated, 30 second rest, 15 reps, 30 second rest, 15 reps, 30 second rest, 15 reps, deflate, go to the next exercise within a minute. By the time you deflate them, get them to the next exercise and reinflate the cuffs, that's your minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I might get three exercises there. And then I like people leaving feeling really good. Now they already feel good typically with the exercise that I've done with them with BFR. So then I'll do something nice, you know, a little vibration therapy. I'll do a little, you know, a little bit of light massage. Maybe they go into and do, um, you know, just a little cool down on the treadmill for a minute or two, just to make sure when they're leaving, they're feeling good. And, um, and that would be a session. Um, okay. Some people, you know, some people only do 25 minutes with me. And so I might only get five minutes of manual therapy or 10 minutes of manual therapy, depending on their pain levels. And then I might get two exercises in and then they have their home exercise to do. So okay. you can well, make it. Yeah. The, the, the intention really, I'm in my goal, I believe yours is too, is to really get everyone to understand this and apply it and not see a therapist like you. Now, if they have a specific rehab issue course, they need to see a therapist or if they want handholding the process, then go for it. But ideally this is something you need for the rest of your life especially as you age, there's no question. So I, I've got a one interesting tangent that I wanna mention, because I do this, I, I travel with these, these, these bands, and before, I, I try to do them before I lecture, within an hour or so, because the improvement to my mental clarity, my ability, my enthusiasm, the way my brain is working just explodes, and it really allows me to give a much better presentation. So mm -hmm. I just, I, there's that mental benefit, and it's actually done through a hormone called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is actually facilitated, increased, it's increased and facilitated by the lactic acid. So uh, it's pretty clever uh, step, step. But anyway, that was an inter interjection. But the, the other component, though, I'm wondering if you could describe for this home person who's got the bands and doing it, you know, what the typical regimen would look like. Is this something you can do every day because you're really not pushing it to failure? There's not enough trauma that you're causing and would you and if so every day you know how many exercises are you doing because with a katsu they're pretty restricted you can only use the band they don't recommend stopping not including the band but uh there, there's is you know basically leaking anyway so 
uh, you have it for 15 minutes on the arms and 20 minutes on the legs. But for yours, you can theoretically do five, six, 10 different exercises because you're always uh, releasing the pressure. So there's no risk of ischemic damage there. So I'm wondering what that, what that your, your home program looks like and the combination of the upper body versus lower body. And do you ever do both, all the limbs simultaneously? Okay, so um, lots, never, lots of questions. <laughs> yeah, I never do the limbs simultaneously, and the reason um, is that I think you reduce stroke volume so drastically that um, you're going to make people uh, faint. Faint. Yeah, yeah. Feel sick, like you know, anytime that you've exercised in the heat or you've overdone yeah. it, and you have that feeling for like a day where you're like, oh. I don't want people to ex experience that. So I never do uh, cuffs on all four limbs. Yeah, Kasi says the same thing. They don't recommend that at all. Primarily, I do cuffs on both upper or both lower at the same time, unless I can't do it on a limb, like with my girl that I'm going to go do a home visit with today. She just had surgery. I can't put a cuff here because there's sutures, and I'm not getting her out of her brace, but I can do crossover. So I can do some stuff on the other side. I can do some stuff on the legs. Mm -hmm. Um. But for the home person, the home program, I mean, they're, they're initiated, they've gotten over that, that ramp on phase, so they're, you know, they're able to tolerate higher pressures. Yeah, so thanks. <laughs> I, needed a, I need to put the cuffs on and get my brain refocused. Okay. Um, so I don't think you need more than about four, maybe five exercises a day, because by the time you're done with five exercises, you're done. Like, you're <laughs> done. Like, like what else are you gonna do? You're you've you've totally fatigued all your motor units. You're psychologically tired. Like you don't need to do more than that. Yeah, now, it looks it looks to me like you've got an aura ring on too on your right hand. I do. Yeah. yeah. So that's another tool that you can use to assess how deeply a hole you dug yourself into is to look at your recovery rate on the aura. So that's another. Absolutely. Not everyone has it, but it's an it's another another way that you can know if you've overdone it and and find that optimum number of exercises. Yeah. Nice catch. That's good. Um, so yeah, five exercises is about your max. Um, if I was doing this at home solely, like that was it. Um, cause I'm like you, when, when I'm home and I can go to my gym, I, I, I like CrossFit. So that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I use this as a supplemental. Mm -hmm. My personal opinion is if you can lift 65% of your one rep max, your high intensities, if you can do it, you do it. Mm -hmm. And you use BFR as a supplemental. So if, so for example, for me, I might, um, I might feel like, you know what, my upper body is not as strong as I would like it. Um, or my calf is not as big as I would like, or my biceps aren't as big, or there's something that I want to work on. I go do my normal exercise. And then two or three times a week, I would do what I call a complimentary BFR session, one or two exercises to the limb or the, to the area that you want to focus on, but I would do it after you're already done with your high intensity exercise. And I would, you only need to do it two or three times a week because two or three times a week has been shown to be as effective for a strength and hypertrophy as five times a week. No but, need that, but is that BFR or conventional strength training or both? BFR. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But you could still switch the exercises. So you could do chest, buys and tries and you know so essentially be doing it every day with different body parts you could totally and i'm just saying as a complimentary like hey you know i'm gonna do this as an add-on you know most people 
only have a certain amount of time in order to exercise every day. So they're gonna utilize it supplementally. If I'm not doing high intensity exercise, then what I'm gonna do is alternate. I'll do upper body one day, I'll do lower body another day, and then I'll do aerobic probably on my lower body day is probably what I would do. I would walk for 15, and then I would do three or four exercises for my lower extremity with the thinking that the more dynamic exercises you do, you're gonna get this fatigue factor going, you're gonna recruit type ones and type twos, and then I can blow out, and when I say blow out in a good way, meaning tire out the rest of it afterwards with some isolated exercise. Upper body, I would do the same thing, but on my off day. So I'm looking at, you know, 45 to 60 minutes of exercise, I'm gonna be really tired, my, I'm going to get an aerobic training effect. I'm going to get a isolated and integrated body approach. I'm going to get a pain reduction. I'm going to get my brain stimulated. And then I'm going to move on to uh, my next task. All right, let me just comment on that. First of all, again, you're referring to high intensity exercises to strength training, not necessarily high intensity rapid movement exercises. So, um, because it, it, from, the, from a physiological sympathetic overdrive perspective, the, the BFR would qualify as, as high intensity, but it's not from a strength, strength training perspective. But the, the, the reason why I agree with you totally on the, on the strength training, if you can do it, and many, if not most of the people watching this video cannot do that, they cannot reach 65, 70%, 85% of their one rep max and do that eight times with, for a few sets. So the reason you want to do that if you can is because BFR, and you correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is it just addresses the muscles and the physiology. It doesn't address the connective tissue and the tendons. So you need to have that strength to get that effect. So if you can do it, do it. And, and if you're doing the conventional strength training, you're getting essentially the BFR benefits too. I mean, sure. that is a high, they call it high intensity because you are hitting type two muscle fibers. So right. you're going to get the same benefits. Correct. But the reason why, this is, uh, let me just finish this and you can comment, is the, that that I would disagree for not someone your age, but someone who are my age and older because of the microcirculation deficiencies to develop as you age. You can't, even if you're doing like, like Bill Morgan, he's, this is a beast. He's, do, he's 60 years old. He's doing these conventional strength training and he's not getting the benefits because his microcirculation is decreasing, which is why I believe you need that BFR on a regular basis uh, because it will improve microcirculation, where I don't think that the conventional strengthening does. At least I'm not aware of it being shown in the literature. I'm not either, and I, yeah. I'm not arguing. I think yeah. um, I would be surprised if it's not there. I would be surprised if, because um, we do know you get this increase in capillarization, but, you know, I don't know. That's not... That's not my wheelhouse, but I think it's interesting that if, if we just switched to BFR. Um, not exclusively. I mean, eventually you want to yeah. get into the strength training. There's no question. I mean, that is, they're not mutually exclusive. No, 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 no. And I, and I, and I agree that, you know, a lot of people can't lift that type of a load. And if you can't tip that, lift that, that, that type of a load, you should be doing BFR five days a week. I mean, um, you know, I don't think... You, you or know, if you're choosing not to lift that load, because a lot of people don't, even though they can. Sure, absolutely. Much better to do that than not at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. Okay. All right, just a fine-tuning on it. But yeah. I think it's an important one, because to me, the biggest benefit outside of rehab 
which is certainly an important role, but the, the primary population is the people over 60. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I'm particularly motivated in this because both my parents passed away being sarcopenic. And it, mm-hmm. once you get over 80, it's, it's the vast majority of the population, over 60%. The older you get, the worse it becomes. And BFR is something I'm pretty well convinced, and I don't know what your ex- clinical experience is in treating sarcopenia with BFR, but I'm pretty much convinced you can not only prevent it, but you can treat it in most people. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I don't have a, a huge experience with treating sarcopenia per se. Um, and I think we all, and why I think it's so important for this modality to be utilized by all different types of people and for us to study it is because everybody comes in with this sense of urgency with different environments and life experiences. And, you know, my parents are super active. They work out probably four or five hours a day, whether it's on their bike or (laughs) walking the dog, no joke. They are amazing people. My dad is 85 today. It's his birthday. And he looks like he's 65 and they have taught me a lifestyle of eating well, not to smoke, um, exercise every day. And because I come with that from that perspective, it's different than somebody like yourself with your folks. And so you're saying like, Hey, like I need to help my parents. And so I think the more that people come in with all these different experiences and say, how should we be utilizing it? Then we can start studying it. Then we can say, Hey, this is the dosage we need. I just don't think we're there yet with a lot of it. We know it works. We know that it mimics high intensity exercise at low loads. Now is really the time where we got to like, say, okay, do we need a, a gym that just does BFR to prevent sarcopenia and, and allow for older individuals to be utilizing this just like we would do with silver sneakers or with any of these other programs where we're using light intensities um, and in safe environments so people can live healthier and more active lifestyles? Well, in my mind, this is at some point I'm going to seek to catalyze this transition but every assisted care facility needs this they need because they've all got exercise therapists as far as i know most of them at least most of them have it and Mm -hmm. they need to understand this modality they need to get everyone in that facility doing this to improve their quality of life because you know once they lose the ability to to stand up from sitting down in a chair you know it's a rapid down decline to death yeah 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 let me know how i can help because i'd like to be there with you yeah so yeah, well, well, you are. You're, you're doing a lot. You're training the professionals. And part of the process is to educate the community, the culture about this. And it's a slow process, but we're making, with, with such an, an amazing uh, innovation, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious how well it works. And when, I started seeing benefits within a week or two. And when I asked the people who sold me the equipment, the console equipment, why it worked, I didn't believe their explanation. So I did a deep, deep dive in the literature like you, but for a different reason. Mm-hmm and found the substantial, literally this was eight years after you started looking and there's a lot more articles out there than the 650 you found mm-hmm. uh, that really substantiates. And this is well done peer reviewed, peer reviewed uh, studies. Mm-hmm. So uh, the information is there. We just have to provide uh, the tools and the resources of people to learn it. So along those lines, I, you, I know you're in the process of writing a book and I will certainly have you back on when you have that book published, but for now, if there's a healthcare professional, an exercise therapist, a physical therapist who wants to learn this, what type of resources do you have to help them acquire the skill set? Sure, we have um, a couple of different. So um, 
we have live training and next year, 2020, it looks like we're going to do over 250 live trainings. Wow. Now you can't possibly do all those yourself. <laughs> no, <laughs> I have about, um, I have a really great cadre of instructors that are really passionate about the subject. Um, and so we are going to be like spanning the globe, spreading the word. Um, and so we do a lot, a lot of live training. You can um, find out where those live trainings are at uh, smarttoolsplus.com and just go on live courses and find it. Um, I also have an online course that is right now for rehab professionals. It's kind of the pre-performance BFR. And I'm also writing uh, the performance, which would be how to utilize this in a performance setting, like how do the Detroit Lions use it, how does Stanford University use it with people that are not injured. Um, you can find out all that information on my website, ed at, or it's edlacara.com. Um, and primarily, you know, I'm trying to go around and speak about it as much as I can, like I was in Dallas, to, to try to bring more awareness, to have more people understanding it, and then hopefully having my book finished uh, relatively shortly so that way I can, um, you know, spread the word even further. Okay, great. Well, we look forward to the book and uh, look forward to working with you specifically. Uh, it's just a great uh, privilege. Really, one of the highlights of my trips to Parker was meeting, connecting with you because, uh, you know, there's not many individuals who understand this at a deep level and have the clinical experience to see what, what happens and how to how to fine tune it and you know make it and provide even more benefits from it. Actually, you know, I did have another question for you. I neglected to ask before we sign off. And so, so a person like myself or someone who's really done it for a few months and you know and is in pretty good health and good shape, is there? Could you provide the guidelines or the recommendations and how you would progress if you wanted to increase strength and hypertrophy? I mean, how would you, because there's a few variables that you can change. Well, you're not going to change the, well, we could change the pressure. You mm -hmm. couldn't change the, the amount of weight that you're pushing, but mm -hmm. you're probably not going to change your form or the number of reps. So mm -hmm. why don't you discuss how that is and what parameters would use to know when to go to the next step? Sure. Yeah, there's, there's a couple different ways. Um, I don't change the pressures except for before, after the first few sessions. So Okay. So 50% and 80%. For the most part. Like it's, I think in my clinical experience has shown me the higher the pressures that I use, the better results that I get. Okay. Um, and I think that's because of that hypoxic environment that we're creating. So once I can build somebody up to 50% in the upper extremity and 80% limb occlusion pressure in the lower extremity, I kind of just stay there and, and just. Okay. So then my next variable would be really the weights that we use. And so there's a couple of different ways. Number one, if somebody is healthy and wants to do this, and I get this a lot where they're an Olympic lifter, they're a CrossFitter, they know their one rep max. Mm -hmm. and so if they know their one rep max, or even their five rep max, or their three rep max, or their 10 rep max, there are scales that we can use to estimate your one rep max. And then I'll base the weight that we're using on that one rep max, which is typically where we start is that 20% and about every two weeks, I would increase by 5%. So that will gradually increase up to about 30, 35% of your one rep max. And that should be increasing as you go. And so it should be at a point where you don't, you don't really need to change much after that because you're just constantly increasing slight little changes 
every few weeks. The other way that you can increase intensity. Is there a, a, a maximum that you would go like 40%, 35%, 30? 35% is about the max that I would go. And it's about the max that I've ever needed to go. Because okay. in all reality, I worry less about the weight being pushed and more about fatigue okay. to about three reps of failure. And the reason I think that that is so important is that number one, we're not causing um, muscle damage. Now, again, I'm coming at from a rehab professional's standpoint, so I don't want to cause muscle damage. There's some people out there that would say, well, it's okay to cause muscle damage as long as you have enough time between to repair. And I'm, I'm totally on board. Like I get it. Like if you're only training once or twice a week because you're in the middle of a basketball season um, and you're an NBA player, great. Like I get it. So you can, you can, you can choose to go to failure if you want to, knowing that you're creating some muscle damage due to exercise, but you're giving yourself enough time to repair. Outside of that, I don't want to cause muscle damage. So I'm going to get to about three reps of that and I might need to increase the load a little bit because, you know, you're not, you're not feeling like you're close to that failure point. Well, what do you mean by three reps? You mean three sets of the exercise? No, nothing changes. We still do the 30, 15, 15, 15. Yeah. But if somebody does 30 reps really easily to start, yeah. right, right. that's what it should be. After that 30-second rest, by about rep 9 or 10, they should start looking at me with some bug eyes going, okay, yeah, this is getting tough. On the second set? Second set of, yeah, the second set. By the third set, which is really your second set of 15, this is getting a little confusing without writing this out, but when you're into that third set, you should be feeling like, okay, yeah, the acidosis is occurring, like I'm getting tired. And by the fourth set, you can finish, but, but just barely. Like, yeah you're getting pretty close to being like, I can't finish. Like I'm pretty close to like being, having to tap out. Then I know that that weight is, okay, is right. So in my notes, what I do is just, I recommend everybody keep a journal and be like, okay, I used 15 pounds for my dumbbell. I went through all 75 reps and it was too easy. My, my rate of perceived exertion was a four. I want your rate of perceived exertion by the time you're done with all 75 reps to be about an eight out of 10. Seven okay. out of 10. Interesting. You know, I, I just this morning for the first time after getting your uh, protocol, I, I switched it to that because I was typically doing three sets of 30, mm. which is really, really hard. The first mm. set of 30 is easy. The second set, I mean, it, it gets to 20 and it becomes a real chore. So I, I actually even the it's actually more reps because yours is 75 and this is 90 reps but I found it much easier. You tend to get less exhausted from a cardiovascular perspective. So you're by the, by the third set, I mean, you're just like, if you, you've run a 200 meter dash. Sure. Uh, so I like this protocol better, but I'm intrigued. I was still using the Katsu bands and I haven't not gotten your, your new set yet. So it, probably going to back, I'm going to back off and ramp up because it, a complete occlusion or not complete, but 50% occlusion without any venous return probably is a different story. Yeah, you're gonna notice you're gonna notice a difference, um, and you'll know you're at the right weight when you, like the Owens people say, you earn your deflate. <laughs> you're like, okay, I'm good. I want to get this thing off me. But I, I absolutely appreciate appreciate your strong recommendation to ramp people up, and it's something I didn't I didn't fully appreciate at all. 
but it makes perfect sense, you know, because uh, thinking back on the way I started, I think everyone's got to have this challenge because it's so foreign to them. They've never done their life. Am I hurting myself? You know, right. so there's all these questions in their brain. It really takes two or three uh, episodes or experiences with this before you get comfortable and develop the accommodation to tolerate the therapy. Absolutely. And I didn't, I failed to mention this when I was talking about limb occlusion pressure, but I, I don't think that you have to do it every visit. I mentioned that I do it on my first visit. I typically do it again about my fourth visit when people have gotten kind of used to it. And then I will do it after that about once a month. Mm -hmm. And that's enough because the accommodation will change a little bit of the pressures. Your body's adaptation will change. So I do think that they need to be redone every so often, but not every time. Well, and I would imagine that there's not a high level of precision. You're using a regular SFIG. So, I mean, one little line is two millimeters. You can't really right. dial in digitally and it's going to stay there. So you're probably, you're going to be off by five to 10% anyway. Absolutely. And you're taking a percentage of that. So you're at either 50% or 80%. It's going to change with time of day, hydration levels, just like your systolic blood pressure. So you're exactly right. As long as we are at the higher end. And as long as you, again, get to fatigue, like I, I really honestly think it's all about getting so close to failure, but not quite at these high reps, like 75 reps. And that's where the magic happens. You, just do, you know, sort of summarizing your recommendations, you don't want to push to failure. I, it, when I do not want to cause more damage to tissue, I do not want to go to failure. Correct. But fatigue, pretty, pretty comprehensive fatigue. You're tired. Yeah, you want to be tired. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's good. That makes perfect sense. So, uh, there's. Do you have any tips for pull-ups though, other than assisted pull-up? Or probably not, because you just. It's too hard. You have to do lat pull-downs or just yeah, yeah. you know band. You know band pull-downs. Bands, yeah, bands, yeah. That would do it. Those are good. But like I have the the bands over there, and so I can utilize. Um, I can utilize kind of those crossovers that way, and it's it works really well. What do you I forgot to ask you about isometrics. Oh so, yeah. Like, like my, my trainer had me yesterday, he was holding like a five pound here and then a, or a 10, oh, a 10 pound and then a 15 pound. So I was isometrically holding this and doing the reps with the other one and then switching it. Mm -hmm. You know, so the isometrics with BFR should be an interesting. Yeah, we do one minute, one minute hold. One minute hold. One minute rest or enough rest up to one minute. Typically it's about 30 seconds is what people need. So one minute hold, 30 second to a minute rest, one minute hold, do three, three rounds of that. And saying weight restrictions uh, require like. Yeah. And it, usually it's because I can't do their pain levels are too high with oh, okay. isotonic exercise. So then I go to that or I do it for tendon loading. So, okay. you know, when you're, I, I agree with you. I don't think the tendon is, it's not heavy enough for a tendon to adapt. So what I do instead is I do long hold isometrics because they've been shown like wall yeah. sits with an incline or decline really. Um, doing some isolated isometric exercises like for lateral epicondylitis or medial epicondylitis or something is really helpful. So I will use that if the pain levels are too high to get to isotonic yet. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. The, uh, cause it seems like isometrics could have a, a pretty profound benefit with that, with that hypoxic exposure. Wow, this is great. This is a lot. We went, you know, I thank you for taking the time out of your schedule, carving it up so that we could go deep and really give people a comprehensive set of, of instructions and understanding because the, the, this is such a profoundly powerful tool 
that uh, they really need as many details as they can get to, to implement this. Absolutely. And um, I just want to say how grateful I am for you for my whole career. You don't know this because I just met you, but for my whole career, I have followed your, what you do and you bringing this information to people, not just this information, but all the information that you bring, I mean, is, is I, I just can't say thank you enough, not just for me, but from millions of people yeah. that would not get exposed to this type of thinking without you. And so thank you very much for almost 30 years of me following your stuff. I mean, it's been all since I was in school and I graduated 20 years ago. It's been a long time. Yeah. Well, I've only been out, we've only been out 22 years, but it's a long time nevertheless. And, uh, yeah. you know, we are, I really feel I'm living my, my uh, intended purpose full mm. purpose and being, cause I, I just love to learn. I mean, I'm going to be learning till the day I die. There's not, not a micro down on my mind. And mm. I love sharing information and teaching people because it's just, it saddens me at the deepest core that so many people are suffering and die in, in pain and dying prematurely because they don't understand simple basic principles. And right. largely, it's not because they're ignorant or stupid. I mean, no. some people are. <laughs> but it's largely because these large multinational corporations have felt that they are better off in their bottom line pocketbook to enrich that rather than serve people information that's going to confuse and deceive them and, and hide the truth from them. So mm -hmm. I, I find that intolerable and really is one of my primary missions is to, to, to address that. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So thank you for appreciating it. Appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been great. I'm looking forward. We never met in person. With this. this is actually the first time I've seen you, but we've talked on the phone and I look forward to working with you in the future because, you know, I think it's going to take a team of people to get this thing widely adopted. And I certainly perceive you as being one of that team. I hope so. I look forward to it. Thank you very All much. All right. Well, thanks, Ed. All right.